Hi there. Welcome and uh, Dharma Punks, New York, Tuesday night class. And I am Josh Corda, and I'm very happy to be here with you. Just a couple of notes. Um, the uh, retreat, which is happening over Labor Day at Garrison Institute, should be posted if not next week, hopefully by the beginning of April. DharmaPunksNYC.com website. It will, the information will be there, or you could also check Garrison Institute, which is where the retreat will be, which is just about an hour north of New York by the Metro North train. Train leaves us a short walk through the woods to the Institute. Very beautiful walk by the Hudson. So it's a great way to get there. You don't have to use a car. And um, so I hope those of you that uh, feel up for doing an in-person retreat will consider that. And if you'd like to support my work, which is offered entirely free of charge, everything I do, the counseling and teaching is all by donation. There's the uh, PayPal button on the website, or there's Venmo, Dharma Punks NYC is the Venmo. So thanks for that. And without further ado, jumping into tonight's conversation on fear. There's a significant component of fear, which we could refer to as the conditioned threat response. For instance, if you're sitting and suddenly you feel a sensation on your shoe and you look and you see a rat crawling over your shoe, oh my goodness, or a, uh, you get a phone call late at night, or you're lying in bed and you hear suddenly a sound that Sounds like it could be from inside your apartment. A very fast involuntary series of events occurs within a half a second. Now, in most cases, this will result in a quickened heart rate, rapid inhalations. Your blood will flow to your limbs. There will be a narrow focusing of awareness to a small area where you expect the threat to be. And your, um, uh, when your blood flows to your limbs and uh, the HPA axis is switched on, also your body stops um, generating white blood cells and instead goes into the production of red blood cells because it anticipates some form of injury. And so that's the underpinnings of the fight-flight panic response, the quickened heart rate, the mobilization state, the either rapid breathing or the held breath, the panic looking for a threat, the rapid-fire thoughts cycling through one's mind. If all goes well, and you determine the threat is not present, then you metabolize the mobilization state, you unwind, hopefully, you shake, tremble, you uh, 
let the breath return to normal. But if the threats are continuously present in your environment, for example, children who grow up in environments where caregivers or uh, other adults are um, often scary, uh, then the sustained vigilance of fear can lead to a chronic secretion of the stress hormone cortisol. And that over time uh, is not only very physiologically uh, challenging, but also it changes how our genetic codes can be expressed. A lot of us are born with predispositions to bipolar disorder or to other uh, disorders. But if we grow up in secure environments, those predispositions genetically won't be switched on. But if we grow up in environments that are scary, uh, dramatic, violent, then those predispositions for schizophrenia and other disorders can be switched on. Now, that's just one component of fear, the heightened fight, flight, rapid heart rate, rapid blood flow to limbs, the mobilization state as it's known. There's other responses or underpinnings to fear. Many people become immobilized. Blood rushes down to the abdomen in what's called a dorsal dive. We go not into the sympathetic arousal state, but into a dissociative, checked out, freezing state. And that is still very much a fear response, although physiologically it's the exact opposite in many ways of the heightened mobilization panic state. A third response, as uh, we now are increasingly uh, noting in clinical studies, is known as the fawn response, which is neither freezing nor fleeing nor fighting. It's an attempt to placate a bully, a boss, a figure of authority, to become compliant, to say whatever it takes to avoid conflict. And this can be associated with a, a limited physiological response, and yet it's a fear response all the same. Threat responses can occur, by the way, without us becoming afraid. So our heart can start racing uh, when we are triggered by subliminal threats, threats we're not consciously aware of. Also, threat of physiological states like racing of heart rate can happen normally in day-to-day -day events when people play sports, exercise, during sex and so forth, our bodies can go up into a state of uh, where the blood flows differently, the heart rate quickens, and so on and so forth, without any fear whatsoever. <coughs> so it all goes on to say that the underlying mechanisms that detect and respond to threats are not identical to fear. I'll say that again, the physical responses to threats are not 
identical with being afraid. This is very important. For many, many years, uh, science and psychology followed the work of individuals well-meaning, like William James, who proposed that the epicenter of fear or emotions was the physiological response. So for James, fear was that moment when we start to panic and run, even we, before we become aware of the bear, he said the physiological response of running or rapid heart rate or going into the um, freeze uh, was in and of itself fear. But this is no longer thought to be the case. The mechanisms that detect threats are not the same as what gives rise to a conscious state of fear. Animals have stress responses. They can fight, flee, or freeze. But there's limited information to show that they have the uh, cognitive response that in human beings really creates the, I would say, some of the most unpleasant conditions associated with fear and anxiety. In fact, today's most prominent theorists, neuropsychologists, on an affective neuroscientist on fear, such as uh, Joseph Ledoux and Lisa Feldman Barrett, who wrote a wonderful book, How Emotions Are Made, as well as many others, such as Antonio Damasio, now show that the, um, there's a far more significant component to conscious thought or conscious processes to fear rather than the physical state. The experience of fear is personal. Uh, the fear that I experience or that is expressed in me when uh, uh, in scary situations for, for me, one might not be scary for you at all. I, for instance, due to a series of early childhood unpleasant events in uh, boats, don't feel comfortable all at all on small boats. For many people, being on a small boat is entirely pleasant. Two, the way fear is expressed in me might be totally different. Now, the physical component in me might be totally different from what's in you. For example, I might, in a sudden encounter on a street or where I'm walking down a street at night and I suddenly hear footsteps right behind me, some people might panic, start to run. Some people might freeze. Some people might, if the sensations were scary enough, even faint. So there's no underlying physiological uh, response that defines fear. Moreover, in Feldman Barrett's work, when you look at people's brain scans from one culture to the next, the way they process the different regions of the brain that are implicated in fear 
might be entirely different. Most cases you'll see some involvement of the amygdala, but then there are many other regions that vary from uh, according to one's previous experiences of trauma, genetics, social influences, all of which go into play and influence on how fear is expressed. The way fear works according to some contemporary neuropsychologists that we mentioned is that one, the brain is constantly predicting what we'll experience in the future based on what we've experienced in the past. And so each individual, each of us has our own personal, what they call fear profile based on previous traumas and previous frightening events. For some people who grow up in abandoning childhoods where one caregiver is never or unreliably present, they might have an active fear profile for abandonment. In adult relationships, they might be consciously anxious, looking for the sign that their partner will uh, suddenly die, or they might have jealousy and rage. Um, for another partner, another person, though, who grew up with helicopter parents or parents who were a lingering, uncomfortable present, might not have any fear of abandonment but might have significant fear of engulfment. And so being in relationships, they might have a constant fear of being encroached upon, having a partner uh, being uh, invading their privacy, and that can trigger the same or different characteristic fear responses. So each of us, based on our history of trauma and our history of painful events in our life, have our own, uh, our own profiles of what causes fear. And in each of us, the way that fear will be experienced, what could be called the qualia of fear, will be different. This is why when when we're frightened of something and uh, someone we're with isn't, it's so difficult to explain why or get across our experience because one, the situation that's causing us fear might be completely uh, uh, neutral in name to them, but also the way we experience fear might be quite different. Some people are more prone to dissociation, some more prone to panic, some are more prone to fawning, and some are more prone to spiraling cognitive thoughts, self-referential thoughts of, of catastrophizing thoughts and so on and so forth. So it's a very, very, there's no such a thing as a universal transpersonal fear response. Due to the cognitive role in fear, humans often make fear even worse than it need be. One, of course, reason is that we have a tendency to self-referential thoughts. Our ideations, our thinking can actually worsen fears and can aggravate 
uh, unpleasant situation into a absolutely frightening one. Uh, there are examples of people who at the beginning of the pandemic out of extreme anxiety went to all, all sorts of dangerous attempts to protect themselves, sh shooting up or consuming uh, 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 I, I think they were uh, uh, de-parasite uh, medications that were not safe for human beings and so forth, simply due to the spiraling self-referential catastrophizing thoughts. One can spin out a bad review at work into the inevitability of being fired and then being homeless. And in such a case can essentially aggrandize fear without any actual threat being present. But that's not the only way that we make fears worse. Due to the right brain's associative wiring, Uncomfortable experiences can be what's called generalized to similar categories. So, for example, we might have an unpleasant experience with a single Rottweiler who barks at us and is aggressive, but that then can spread to a fear of all dogs, which in turn could then spread to a fear of all animals and so forth. One person could have, for example, a unpleasant experience outdoors one day being mugged or being uh, assaulted. And then that by generalization, one could be afraid of being outdoors altogether. And that debilitating agoraphobia can be the result and so on and so forth. The right hemisphere of the brain is an associative machine and the basal lateral amygdala, which is part of the fear response, is very adept at learning fear. So any fears that start small can grow very easily. For example, um, uh, if we go through a breakup and uh, our ex lives on a certain block and we decide, okay, I'm not going to go to that block anymore. And then the right hemisphere can associate that block with an entire neighborhood. Okay. That goes to show I'm not going to go to um, Prospect Heights anymore. I'm not going to go to Bed-Stuy anymore. And then that neighborhood could switch to an entire borough or even an entire city. So due to generalization, fear can grow from specific situations. For instance, an unpleasant interaction with a boss can then spread to fearing all interactions with all supervisors and work. And there's a third way we worsen fear, which is called avoidance coping. People tend to believe that when they have a frightening or scary situation, the best thing to do in the aftermath is to avoid that situation or that activity altogether, or at least for a while. So for example, if you're riding your bike and suddenly a car swerves and nearly hits you, or you have a fall on your bike, 
the idea is that if we avoid riding our bike for a while, we'll get over it and then we can go back to it. This is almost invariably the exact opposite of what we should do. It's kind of a uh, folk remedy even that people say, if you fall off a bike, get right, right back on it. And there's a lot of truth to that because anything we avoid due to neuroceptive processes in the brain will become increasingly threatening to us, not less threatening. I'll experience a greater discomfort when I get back on a bike if I wait two weeks than if I simply get right back on it after a fall. If I go through an unpleasant conversation with a neighbor and I try to avoid times that that neighbor will be out on the street, I'm going to be more and more concerned and uh, uh, aversive to encountering that neighbor than if I simply the next day walked out and made it a point to go out the time when I thought that neighbor would be there. Why is there? Why does avoidance always backfire? Well, part of it is due to what's called the ironic process. Uh, um, Dan Wegner and other neuros, uh, other psychologists noted is that if we tell ourselves that we should avoid something, it stays constantly in our unconscious, and our unconscious constantly looks for it. And all of that stress begins to be associated with the threat itself. And so it grows in danger and difficulty the more we avoid anything. There's also a lot of current research that shows the longer we avoid something, the more regions of the brain we enlist to help us practice avoidance. At first, it's just organized by the amygdala and some parts of the frontal lobe, but eventually the striatum and habit formation comes in. And if we try to break the habit of avoidance, it triggers even more repetitive ideations and catastrophizing thoughts and so on and so forth. So whatever underlying explanation you go with, it really doesn't matter. The one thing that's very clear that any psychologist will tell you is that the more we avoid things, the worse they become. And in fact, many uh, famous psychologists like uh, Casalino, Louis Casalino, I believe his name is, noted that the single marker that shows that any therapy or treatment of uh, any form of uh, psychiatric treatment is working is when people stop avoidance coping, when they stop avoiding things that are scary. We move from saying, I'd like to do that, but it's scary, to we say, I'd like to do that, and it's scary, and I'm going to do it even though I'll be scared or frightened while I do it. So how does fear extinction work? What is fear extinction? Well, the classic operant theory of fear is very simple. If you 
for example, every time you see a red X pop up on a computer screen, you're given a very light shock. Over time, you'll have a fear response whenever the red X pops on the screen, even if there isn't a shock. You've learned to associate the red X with shock. It's kind of the same exact um, process as when uh, you ring a bell and you feed a dog. Eventually, if you simply ring the bell, the dog will start to salivate, even if there's no food present. We begin to associate situations and experiences with threat and so on and so forth. Now, traditionally, the way that we extinguish fear is to re-expose people to the threat, this time in a safer way where the scary situation or activity doesn't have a harmful event. So, for example, if you had an unpleasant experience with a Rottweiler and you didn't want to develop a fear of Rottweilers or dogs, what you would do would be to find a friend who had a well-trained Rottweiler and you'd go into the same room with the Rottweiler and maybe you'd stand across the room and your heart would panic and you'd have to practice breathing slowly, softening your abdomen to prevent the uh, the HPA axis from switching on uh, and activating a lot of the uh, panic sensations. You might over time slowly move towards the, uh, the calm Rottweiler. And over a period of days or times, due to this exposure, you over time will habituate or extinguish the fear of Rottweilers. Of course, there's one problem with this kind of exposure therapy, which is that very often people do it too quickly and re-traumatize themselves and make the fear even worse. This is why when fear extinction does happen, sometimes it returns, it's reinstated, and it becomes worse. So, in what's called in vivo exposure, being in the presence of a scary situation, pushing ourselves as quickly as possible to return to, for instance, if we have a, um, if we speak in public and people laugh or don't pay attention and we have a panic attack, the idea that we should rush into speaking in public as soon as we possibly can. Sometimes that'll work like when it comes to the bike riding, but sometimes we can be re-exposed to the exact same scary situation and it will only deepen and integrate the fear response even more. In fact, it might create an even greater panic at the thought of doing whatever activity it was. So there is a process which we're going to be practicing in our meditation, which is called imaginal exposure. That means imagining or visualizing a frightening situation. And in it, we're going to practice some mental techniques to make a scary situation less scary. We're going to practice some breathing and body techniques to make it so that we can uh, move towards an encounter 
an interpersonal situation that previously was scary, whether it's uh, interacting with large groups of people, dating, uh, uh, job interviews, whatever, uh, we can use the same technique. Um, it's important to note that when we stop fearing something, it's not because those neurons have lost their excitability. We don't forget that things are scary. We simply actively learn that they're not threatening anymore. And that means that in the wrong situations, we might over time reinstate the fear if we're once again in a really bad situation. So no matter how much work we do to get over a fear of traveling, uh, and we might get to the place where we imagine it, we visualize it, we develop the skills to get on a plane and go somewhere. But if in traveling again, we have a painful event, it might reinstate the fear and we might have to go through the process again. So the idea that fear extinction can happen forever is not possible, but fear extinction does happen. And once you learn the process to it, you can do it again and again and again in life, and it becomes easier and easier and easier. So exposure is introduced gradually and systemically, meaning there's a lot of self-soothing, a lot of locating of safety cues in each situation. We stop in the process and visualize ways to get out. So it's a whole process that we're going to learn in our meditation, how to essentially reduce fears of certain situations. Before we do it, I just would like to note that there are some alternatives to exposure therapy. And while exposure therapy in various forms is considered to be the most effective way to reduce fear or anxiety of certain situations, it's not the only. Cognitive behavioral therapy techniques can reframe the thoughts we have about uh, fears. For example, I for a short period in my life, had anxiety of flying. And I part of it was due to ideations and thoughts about how unpleasant and scary it would be if a plane started to have some form of uh, mechanical difficulty or had to land in inclement weather or whatever. And I changed the way I framed the thinking, or I changed the way I thought, and I actually changed it to this bizarre idea that, uh, well, if you die in a plane crash, at least it's fast, and you up right up until the moment it happened, you'd be in denial that you were going to die, and then suddenly you'd be dead. And for some reason, all the fear immediately went away, and now I can fly as much as I want because I simply changed the thoughts. And that shows how much of fear, in fact, can be cognitive and not actually stemming from physiological responses. Some people with fear have success in hypnotherapy. And this can be good with phobias. But of course, only a certain percentage of people can have any success in hypnotherapy. So it's pretty much 
uh, hit or miss, and uh, it is pretty expensive. So, um, I mean, it's worth trying in certain situations, but I'm not convinced that it should be a primary approach to managing fear. Some people try what's called neurofeedback. You sit in front of a monitor and you've got electrode sensors on your scalp and you practice learning to create brain waves that are associated with calm and the idea is that you can then use this in all kinds of situations in life that are scary the research which has so far just begun has had some promising results but Again, there's nowhere near enough science showing its efficacy. And right now, a lot of the research, it was done by people who have a stake in making neurofeedback something that people would turn to. So uh, if you want to try it, it's there. Lifestyle choices can reduce our cognitive load. And if it's been shown in a fame in a wonderful study, failure to lose fear, the impact of cognitive load um, has shown that the less unresolved issues or uh, our stressors or obligations and responsibilities we have on our plate, the quicker we can habituate to scary situations and reduce fear. So, it is worthwhile when we're trying to do any approach to managing fear to simplify life, to reduce some of our obligations and responsibilities, because if we're constantly stressed out, our autonomic nervous system is already going to be so heightened that even a very slight stimuli can throw us into a fear state. Finally, there are medications and they to varying degrees can be helpful generally they don't lead to complete fear extinction but they can help us move towards or practice the tools and can be a part of a successful regimen some people use benzos which uh, for example clonopin xanax <coughs> ativan so forth but uh, and these work by slowing down the response of the central nervous system, which in turn can reduce the experience of fear significantly. But the problem, of course, is that benzos are very addictive and they are intoxicating, mood altering, and so on and so forth. So uh, they're only really recommended for people who have significant panic attacks, uh, but for other forms of fear that lead to avoidance coping, there certainly would be overkill. Another treatment that's very prominent is uh, SSRI, SSRIs, uh, which are commonly known as antidepressants, as well as SNRIs. These essentially raise the level of serotonin synaptically and this modulates the responsiveness to your amygdala and thus slows or mitigates uh, or diminishes the physiological response to fear and it also can help reduce obsessive ideations so certain ssris um, and serotonin medications ranging from Zoloft to Effexor to Buspar can be very effective 
in helping people manage fear and anxiety. And lastly, there's also a class of medications called beta blockers. And beta blockers have no cognitive effect whatsoever. They simply stop your heart's beta receptors from processing adrenaline. So you won't have the the heart rate, the beating, the gulping air, the physiological response, but you'll still have all the racing thoughts and so forth. And so in certain situations where our attention is focused, it can be helpful. Musicians and actors use propranolol, the so-called stage fright drug, and it can be very useful. But in general, for a more run-of-the-mill anxiety associated with abandonment, engulfment, loss of income, uh, the, uh, the fears of various interpersonal events, beta blockers would not be practical because you'd still have all of the unpleasant thoughts. And as anyone will tell you, for example, if you try to use a beta blocker for flying and it's a six-hour flight, even though your heart won't be racing, you'll still be maybe have these ongoing repetitive, terrifying thoughts of, of something happening, and it won't be very pleasant. So beta blockers are only useful in situations that are short and where your attention is focused on something like performing. Um, but in other situations, nobody is uh, prescribing beta blockers to help with anxiety disorders. So there you go. Um, so now we're going to go to an actual meditation practice where we're going to first self-soothe, and then we're going to actually put in place uh, a what's known as an imaginal exposure uh, therapy treatment, or what we could call mindfulness-based uh, distress tolerance. Uh, we're going to visualize an experience that is difficult for us, someone we've been avoiding, some situation we've been putting off, maybe a dentist chair, maybe calling up a relative who's angry with us, whatever you want. And we're going to visualize it in a way that's not too overwhelming. And we're going to start a practice that over time, if you practice it just a minute or two every day, can lead to a significant reduction of fear and anxiety. So thanks for listening. I hope that something in the above was interesting. Now find a very comfortable seated or prone position. You could lie down on a couch or a bed. For this practice, we don't have to be seated upright necessarily because, of course, we're working on uh, challenging images. So thanks for listening and closing our eyes. And
try to bring your awareness away from any thoughts about things of the past, experiences of the past, anticipation of the future, and find your portal to the present. And for many of us, the portal to the present is simply returning to the sensations of the body, reeling our awareness within, and finding an ongoing sensation that you don't have to create, it just happens naturally. And just bring your awareness to that sensation. So for some of us, it can simply be the breath. And the breath can be experienced in many ways. For some, it can be experienced as air passing through the nostrils and exiting. It can be experienced, though, as energy moving up from the stomach to the chest and then back down, so a feeling of energy in the front of the body. It can be experienced as expansion in the upper areas of the chest and then a release. It could also be experienced in other areas of the body. One could even feel the breath very subtly in the shoulders, in the sternum, in different areas. If you don't want to work with the breath, and many people find it not particularly easy to stay with the breath, there's other sensations internally that could be used. You could simply feel the sensation of your body making contact with a chair, a couch, a bed, a floor. And just with each sensation practice, going to that one area of the body, relaxing, softening, and letting yourself sink a little into whatever is supporting your body. It's even sometimes fun to work with closed eye visuals. Some people can simply sit and watch the area behind where we would assume the eyelids would be and just observe the lights, patterns, fragments of color, run through the visual circuitry of the brain. Or if we prefer to practice with an external sensation, there are, of course, sounds in any environment. Sounds are an excellent meditation tool and that you don't have to put any effort into creating sounds any more than you have to put an effort to breathe or 
put in or create the lights flickering behind closed eyes. They're happening without any effort. So you can just allow your awareness to focus on each thought as it passes through the sense doors, which we call hearing. Whatever you use as an anchor for your awareness, contact sensations, the breath, lights flickering behind closed eyelids. You could use an imaginary image of a place that makes you feel really safe. Hold that in mind or the sounds arising and passing without any judgment. Try during the beginning of this set to, if possible, soften and slow down the breath. By soften, I mean make the breath as smooth, calming, physically comfortable, lengthening each exhalation so that we're not habitually gulping breath. There's just a very long, smooth release and then a very gradual inflation. We're not pushing out the breath. We're allowing the breath in, allowing it out. So this time we're just gonna sit for a little while in silence. If you find your mind wandering or drifting off into a kind of checked out or sleepy state, either is okay. Simply when you notice either occurring thoughts popping up about experiences that are not present or just you find yourself checking out, just bring your awareness back to the most pleasant sensation in your body, the most pleasant sound surrounding you. Take a nice full breath and just feel good that at any moment you can return to the present and it can be very pleasant.
So now we're going to start with the mindfulness-based distress tolerance practice, or what we could call imaginal exposure. And we're going to reduce, in so doing, the experience of fear associated with situations in life we either find unpleasant or avoid altogether. So for this practice, just make sure that we're as relaxed as we can, our eyes are comfortably closed, the belly is soft, just release any tendency to hold or contract the belly. We'll take a few breaths just to really slow down the autonomic response, the return ourselves to the window of tolerance. It's a very long, slow in-breath, followed by a very comfortable, complete release of the breath. We're not pushing out the breath again, we're just letting it go. Another breath. And then another. So bring to mind first a friendly, safe individual in your life or someone you associate with those characteristics. They can be someone real or they can be just a figure that we associate with strength or care. Someone who is on our side Let's visualize any person, figure, real, imagined. In Buddhism, sometimes people visualize in Devanusati a kind of angelic entity that is looking after us. If it's difficult to visualize, bring to mind a safe, caring, healing individual, then bring to mind a place where we feel really safe. Some place where we feel less pressure, a place where when we go to, we can relax, our shoulders drop, all the repetitive, stressful thoughts dissipate.
or even visualize someplace where you live, your favorite couch, bed, area, someplace when you go to, you feel all of the pressures of the day begin to subside and your body just relaxes a little bit more. So now we have these resources. And while we do this practice, just remember whatever resources, a person, a place, could be even be an activity where you feel safe. And always try to keep your belly soft and your breath as smooth and long as possible throughout this practice. And then imagine in the distance someone or some situation that's very challenging, scary, uncomfortable for us. It doesn't have to be right in front of us. It could be what feels like hundreds of yards, blocks away from us. Suppose we've been avoiding talking with someone from our past. You could imagine that person, but you could imagine them quite a distance. So they're very small. You can imagine your safe resource, your safety figure with you. Or you could even imagine yourself being in a protective bubble where nothing bad could happen. So very gradually move closer to this scary person, this scary situation, this uncomfortable experience. But do it very slowly and gradually. Always breathing slow, softening the belly. The moment you start to have any kind of repetitive thoughts in your mind, pull your attention away and just reconnect with the sensations around you, the feeling of sitting in a couch or lying in a bed or sitting in a chair. You can slightly squeeze your toes to create a sensation in the lower body. Try to get as close as you can without it being too uncomfortable to this trigger in your mind. As you move close, at any moment you can stop, pause, look around for safety, look for places you can go to. You can soften your belly. 
always if you want if ever it gets intense just visualizing some present sensation in your environment that's reminds you of safety a safe figure you could move the trigger the imagined threat a little further away you could view the situation from above so you're not in your own body or from the side you can shrink the difficult person or the difficult situation and make it smaller again and just wait until you're ready to make it bigger take your time practice using all the tools in your mind to be with rather than avoid some topic some person some experience or situation and just use this practice as a way to gradually reduce the association with danger So we could do this as long as we like, but now 
for the practice purpose of this time, just allow the triggering image or situation to gradually recede further and further in your awareness, keeping your belly soft, your breath relaxed, just letting the image move further and further away until it's no longer visible. Returning your attention to the sounds around you, the sensations of your body. Letting go after we think any of the internal resources of safety we imagined. And whenever you're ready, taking your time, opening your eyes and returning to the world around you. <laughs>